Hey guys, welcome to the Lang Foundations podcast. This is your co-host Davis Hambrick joining alongside me today is Walker Lott. What's up, Walker? What's up, Davis? Man, I'm excited about today's podcast. Yet another one. I think this is our fourth one uh, we're recording. And it's going to be a good one. I can't wait to hear it. Yeah, I'm excited. Uh, today we get to interview a special guest. It's a childhood friend of my mom and you know he's asked me not to share some of those stories but i'll try my best not to but today's a special guest mr david stovall with the engineering design group based out of birmingham alabama how you doing mr david doing great guys good to see y'all now man great to see you too i re- we we really appreciate you being on here and, and being willing to talk to us a little bit and share your story uh so david David, Mr. David, um, you know, just tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get started? You know, where, where did you start? How did you end up where you are? And, and we just want to learn more about you. Yeah, it's really kind of an, my early story is pretty interesting. I, I started, you know, grew up over in Centerpoint, went to Hewitt Trustful High School here locally, uh, graduated without really a direction when it comes to uh, vocation. You know, I just really didn't know what I wanted to do as a kid. I thought I was going to be a vet. Um, and then graduated from high school and just figured, well, I'll start school. Right. So I started, um, my, my brother, I have a twin brother who's, uh, a lot smarter than me and a lot more talented than me. So he had, um, a, a list of scholarships as long as his arm to get him to Birmingham Southern. And I had, um, <clears throat> nothing but a terrible, uh, list of things that I had not accomplished in high school. So uh, I went to, started at Jeff State on a Pell Grant uh, back in 1987, I guess, when I graduated from high school. And then uh, was fortunate enough to get a job. I had done a mechanical drawing in high school. And so I got a job doing some drafting for an engineering firm because my mom happened to know the lady that was their secretary and came into the bank where she worked to do deposits. So uh, one day my mom just asked the lady, Hey, do you do, do do y'all hire kids for uh, summer help? And the lady said, I don't know. I'll go ask and came back the next day and said, send him in. So I had long stringy hair and, and uh, looked like something nobody would hire and walked in there. And the guy was nice enough to, to give me a job doing some drafting work at minimum wage. And so it was a great way for me to, I guess, occupy my time for that summer before I really started school in the fall and then uh, started school and went, did a year at Jeff State. And sometime during that year, the guy that I was working for, a guy named Pat Doherty, who had a company called Doherty Engineering, they were over in Chalkville. Um, I worked there for quite a while, but when I was in school after about that first year, he came to my office one day and just said, hey, David, if you want to study engineering, I'll pay for you to go to school. And so I said, okay, I think I'll be an engineer. So that's kind of how I ended up in engineering school. And, um, you know, really not a place. I, I think really I was suited for engineering because I've got a pretty mechanical mind and, and enjoy to a certain extent physics and mathematics and all that. But I was a terrible student and, and, you know, did a terrible job in school for a while. I spent, um, you know, I crammed uh, four years of education into just seven years and got me an engineering degree with, uh, and, and walked out that door and swore I'd never go back. So, you know, that's kind of how I ended up in engineering, in engineering as a profession. 
and it really found me more than I found it. Uh, luckily, the guy that I was working for that was paying for me to go to school wouldn't let me quit. So uh, the, the many times that, well, at least the several times that I failed calculus too and wanted to give up on engineering, he told me that, you know, that, that you know, I was sort of required to finish by the fact that he was paying for it. So that all worked out really good for me. And um, I ended up working with him for 12 years total. Um, some things uh, at that office, you know, kind of went sideways. And I had an opportunity to go work with Walter Scholl Engineering, which is, as far as I know, the oldest engineering firm in Birmingham, um, which took me from the the world of doing mechan um, I'm sorry, uh, municipal sanitary sewer and water plant design work to doing site civil work, which is what Shoal does and what I learned to love really as far as the kind of work that we do. And uh, so I spent five years over there, uh, learned a lot. Mr. Shoal is probably the smartest, Bubba Shoal, uh, Walter III, is probably the smartest guy I've ever met as far as um, just an uh, engineering mind. The guy's just a genius. Uh, and so, you know, spent a lot of time learning from him, the, just kind of engineering stuff. Then I got an opportunity to go and be partners with some guys in a firm called uh, CCI, Civil Consultants, Inc., uh, over in Trustful. Uh, the principal owner over there is a guy named Kelly Huffsteller, who's still one of my best friends today uh, and worked with them for four years or so and and then got the opportunity to go do my own thing. And so that's how I ended up engineering design group. And believe it or not, that was 13 years ago. It seems like yesterday, but that's how I got here anyway. No, I think that's awesome. I wish I would have had my mic unmuted when you said crammed four years of studying into seven years. I started laughing <laughs> so hard. Yeah, I, that I wish was... I could use that because I'm Sorry. right there with you. Yeah, I think it was my, yeah. my like fifth or almost sixth year of college. It feels like I'm ready to <laughs> ready to get out of here. I know what you feel. Yeah. I was, um, you know, working full time going at night. So it was a challenge. And my girlfriend at the time, now wife, uh, was at Auburn. So it was, you know, I would work till five, go to school from six to 10, four days a week. And then uh, Fridays, were labs. And so it was close to the same thing and then drive to Auburn and visit her and then come home or hopefully she would come home on the next weekend and we would, but it, and then she graduated and I, uh, and we got married. And so, and I was still in school. So I spent two years married in school, which really, you know, she, she was, she, she really wanted to have kids and we weren't in a position to do that till I got out. So it kind of lit a fire under me to, to uh, get my butt in gear. And that was really the kind of the time in, in my educational experience where it got fun anyway, because it was that last couple of years where it got into real design stuff, you know, where you're doing structures and fluid dynamics and the, the things that are beyond just the mathematical or the, the, or the physics, you know, you're dealing with things that are a little more tangible things that you can see and feel. And it just made it a lot easier for me, believe it or not. My last couple of years, I actually spent a stint on the Dean's list, which was shocking to everybody in my family. Believe me. <laughs> I can second that too. So one of the little known facts, I think about Walker and I 
or at least for me, I think Walker, you might've spoke to this, but you know, I went to Auburn thinking I was pursuing civil engineering and then realized, Holy cow, you know, the <laughs> mathematics portion of the first two years is a math every semester that I could just cannot fathom, you know? Yeah. I mean, I was in pre-med, so I'm not even in y'all's boat. <laughs> I, mean, I, I ended uh, up in construction. We all have, I love it. Yeah. We all have so something are, in common, but that's cool. What are you got your guys' degrees in? So I just graduated in building science in December. Okay. And I'm I'm getting the same thing. I'm getting building science and I'm getting a minor in finance because I, I love the business side of things as well. Yeah, that's a great idea. You know, that's really one of the things that you know, as an engineer, they you go to engineering school and you learn all sorts of stuff about engineering. And then you go and you work for somebody for whatever period of time and you learn more about engineering. And then all of a sudden one day you wake up and you're a business owner and you go, how do I do that? And, and so it was really, uh, for me, for me, you know, it was a, it was a trial by fire because I, I found myself a business owner in 2007 and then the world fell apart in 2008. And so, uh, the, the, the most difficult thing about, well, no, that's a lie. One of the difficult things about it was trying to figure out what exactly is business. You know, I know that I can take something and design it and put it out there and hopefully somebody will pay for that. And then we can go do another project because somebody paid us to do the last one, but figuring out the mechanics of business or the idea to me that business was a mechanical function is something that I didn't understand. And I was lost as a ball in high weeds for a long time. And fortunately had a friend uh, in the, in the business who was a, who got an engineering degree from Georgia tech and then went back and got an MBA from Sanford, got him Ty Kicklider, who again is one of my best friends today, who thank the good Lord above came in and, and taught me some things about, you know, how to, how to do business because I didn't have a clue and trying to do business in 2008, 9, 10, 11, when you didn't have a clue, uh, it is only by the grace of the Lord above that we are still here. Believe me that. I believe it. I mean, that's, you know, kind of going off of that, you know, that, so from college to, to work and while you're working, what would you say is just for people listening college students, even people out, what, what would you say is the biggest difference that you learned that you saw from college work or from learning book learning professors and everything versus actually doing the work. And when you were working full time or actually got out of college, what, what would you say is the biggest difference in that? And, and what would be your advice of going from college, from school, high school, et cetera, to, a, to the workforce? Right. You know, for me, it was a little bit different, right? Because I was working full time the whole time that I was going to school. So I was learning on the job at the same time that I was learning in school. And, and of course, like in any job, what you learn there is a lot more practical than what you learned at school. Right. Um, you know, especially in engineering now, because at least, you know, at least then you learn some things in engineering school that you would have to go into put into practice by, by hand doing when you got into the workforce. Now, you know, it's all done in the box, right? It's all in the computer. So they, they teach you all these fundamentals of engineering 
that you've got to learn in order to get an engineering degree. And then you go out and you find out, I'm not going to use any of that. All that's getting done in that little box, you know, in the Google box on your, under your desk is doing all of this work for you. As long as you can learn which buttons to push in the CAD and how to manipulate the functions in the programs, then you, you can do engineering without having any idea how to do physics or how to do mathematics. You just got to know how to operate a computer, which that's a completely different world than what I came up in. You know, I got my engineering degree finally in, uh, uh, 95, I guess, 94, 95. And it was a completely different world back then when it comes to what was going on. But back to your question, I think the, the fundamental difference that I had between college or university or whatever you want to call it and working is college is exhausting. I mean, it, it is exhausting beyond far beyond, you know, everybody that says, Man, college is the best time of your life. That's, you know, you got to enjoy college because it don't get any better. They are lying. That is the biggest, that's a lie straight from the pits of hell. Because the truth is when you're in school, it never stops. You go to school and you go to class and then you go home and it's, the weight never goes away. You've always, you always feel like I need to be doing something else to prepare for school the next day because I'm, I need to study for that test. I need to be working on a paper. I need to blah, 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 blah. And it never stops. For me, at least, work stops, right? It, it, not always, but tip, on a typical day at, at five o'clock when I, or six or seven or whenever I finish work here and I get in the car and I go home, I can leave here, here. You know what I mean? I can go home and I can be at home and and not worry about what's going on at the office because what's going on at the office can wait till tomorrow. And that's not always the case, but that's 90% of the time in college. It was never the case to me. You know, to me, that was the worst part about college was the idea that it was never finished. I mean, at times, you know, between semesters or whatever, if you took a college break, which it seemed like we never had a chance to do, you, you can, you can rest in those times, but the, the entirety of the semester you spend, exhausted or I spent exhausted. Maybe your experience wasn't like that, but to me, <clears throat> to me, there's, there was never rest in school. No, I mean, I'm right there with you. You know, I, I completely see that what you're talking about. I, you know, me and Davis had, had did a podcast earlier today and I've been sitting in this seat ever since then, you know, working. <laughs> and now I'm like, man, after I get over, after we, we get done with this, I get to eat dinner and then you know, go and study some because I didn't get, didn't do it earlier in the day. It's just never any cycle. I'm sure Davis, you can attest to that. Walker, I'm not envy of your situation. Man. I'm so sorry, <laughs> but you know, I, for Walker and I, I mean, I think that's unique about our perspective. You know, we're guys that, you know, we're self-help, self-learn, you know, we're always reading, but during school, we've always had a job too. So it hasn't, we've been in that situation where it's school and then we're going back to, back to work and school and working. So it's just like, oh my gosh, I'm exhausted. So that's true. If, if we could maybe transition here and talk about, you know, the, the civil engineering side, I know you touched on it a little bit of how it's changed from, you know, when you graduated to now, but if you could define it, you know, for a builder or someone that's in the construction world, what exactly is civil engineering? Typically, you know, in our world, we're dealing with things from the ground down, right? Um, when you, talk about vertical construction, building buildings and all that's outside of our purview, at least what we do. You know, there are structural guys that do that vertical stuff. But in our world of site civil design, 
typically we're dealing with everything from the ground down. So you're dealing with utilities, you're doing grading, drainage, erosion control, um, layout. Uh, sometimes you're dealing with soils, sometimes you're not. But, you know, for, for our world, it's that's mostly it, you know, and, and, and incorporated into what we do, we, at least in my business, we do civil engineering and land surveying. So those two things kind of go hand in hand with what we do. Um, some civil firms don't do surveys. Some survey groups don't do civil. I think they kind of go hand in hand. For us, it's almost like operating two separate businesses that are integrated sometimes. Uh, and it comes with its own challenges. But when it comes to the construction part of things, usually that's the, the, the extent of what we're dealing with. That's awesome. I, you know, I, we, and we kind of touched on this earlier. Um, I grew up, you know, not knowing much about construction. Um, I, none of my family's really in construction. My brother kind of does a little bit, but he's more on the, on the land acquisition development, that type side. Uh, and, and so I always thought that construction was a PM, a super, and you know pretty much just boots on the ground and so then you start getting and i, and I thought about engineering side but again i had my own preconceived misconceptions about engineering and you know so it's like oh civil i think civil i think they do everything with with ground with dirt with maybe even highways and, and doing a lot of stuff you know under the buildings and then in, and then mechanical they they do everything machine related and then you know so it's like i always put the the terms or the the name with what they did but as i grow more and more and i talk to people like you and 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 others i realize that there are so many different routes within each type of career that you can go it's insane i mean it, you can do so many different things and i i'm sure you would agree that this kind of the way with you you know you, you had to start specializing in in an area and so how did you find that this is the area that you love and that you really want to be in and what draw, what drew you to it? Yeah. You know, we have that conversation with a lot of kids coming right out of school, <clears throat> guys with civil engineering degrees that are that, or, or that are working toward a civil engineering degree and they want to come and do an internship at the office or something for the summer. And a lot, you know, nine times out of 10 guys are trying to weigh, do I want to go into engineering, you know, design engineering, or do I want to go into construction engineering? And those those two worlds are kind of separate, and it's interesting to see because a lot of the guys that grow up wearing boots and walking around in the mud, they want to go into construction, right? And the guys who grew up uh, not so uh, affiliated with construction or with the outdoors, they tend to be more uh, leaning toward the design world, you know. But there's a lot of people that don't want to spend 40 hours in a week. I mean, in an office. Um, every week. And so, you know, if it, the good thing about what we do, yeah, I, mean, I get it a hundred percent. And that was part of me too. I, I spent, you know, part of the time that I was working at Doherty about four years of that time, you know, I spent about four years doing drafting. And then I spent about four years as an inspector in the field doing construction admin for uh, on uh, some pretty cool projects, big tunnel projects and some um, wastewater treatment plant construction projects. And so, you know, getting outside and getting the feel for the construction <clears throat> was something tempting to me to go into that, you know, to move over into that construction world. But by that time, you know, I sort of had um, my feet planted in the design world. 
although I dabbled in the construction side as an inspector, I didn't really get into the construction side. And so it was kind of, you know, by that time I sort of was embedded in the design world. And the more that I've done it, the more I appreciate the fact that it's always 70 degrees in here. Uh, especially on weeks like this where it starts off in the twenties and goes in, you know, doesn't get above 40 something that I see my surveyor guys come in in the afternoons and they're bundled up with 12 sweatshirts on and, and still shaking. Look, I get it, you know, but, and you know, but there's something about the outdoors that, you know, people, there are people who enjoy being inside, people who enjoy being outside. And the good thing about our work is you can kind of mix it up on the design side because you still got to make site visits. You still got to go look at the sites that you're working on in order to familiarize yourself with them. And so, you know, it's not all inside and it's kind of, you know, the, the, the further you advance into the career, the more so that is, you know, you're going to start in, in, in our office, somebody that starts uh, straight out of school doing some design work, they're going to spend probably three, two, three, four years sitting at a desk doing design, you know, churning out production work. And as you get into project management, as you get into managing people, that's going to also require you to spend some time going to the sites, looking at what we're doing, making sure that everything works because um, whether you want to or not, that's going to become a requisite as you move on. If that makes sense. Did I answer your question? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Um, Mr. David, if you could, you know, you kind of touched on how the civil engineering design and then the land surveying, that's two of the services y'all provide and how you think they, you know, overlap it. Can you kind of describe that for us and what, what, what each one is? Okay. So <clears throat> on the, there's kind of two phases of what we do in the world of land surveying traditional land surveying, you know, determining the boundary of a piece of property by doing, uh, by, by locating corners and figuring out what that property looks like is, is one side of it. And that also um, entails doing topographic surveys, location surveys. Sometimes it could be anything from a, a mortgage survey on somebody's house to a thousand acre uh, boundary and topo. And that's sort of the land surveying side. And then the other side of that is, you know, construction stakeout. We do a lot of probably a third of our work is doing construction layout for contractors or for owners. Uh, you know, for instance, a contractor needs to know where a sanitary sewer manhole goes. So we go out there and we set a stake in the ground, say it goes here and it needs to be this deep. Uh, if they need to know we're, we're grading a site and they need to know how much dirt needs to come off this hill. We can go set a stake there and say cut eight feet off of it. Um, so working, so, so we've got, you know, we've got guys who the same way that we were talking about engineers, that some engineers want to be outside and working in, in, in construction. And some guys want to be in the office doing design work, you know, in the survey world, we got guys that are really good at doing construction stakeout. And we got guys that are really good at doing uh, boundary work. And, sometimes they don't like doing the other or don't, you know, don't enjoy doing the other or whatever, but we always, um, you know, try to accommodate that. And then, but as far as incorporating or, or how those two things work together, the engineering and the surveying, it's, it's almost like I said before, having two different 
businesses working together. So what will happen typically on one of our, our jobs, if we're doing a site design for somebody, the, the surveyor will go out first. He's going to locate the, uh, or he's going to do the boundary work and the topo work. And then he's going to bring that map in and give it to the design engineer. And the design engineer is going to take in, 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 let's say we're doing a medical office for somebody, the, the architect's going to give us a footprint of the building and the engineer's going to work, take the information from the architect and the information from the surveyor, put those together with the subdivision regulations of whatever municipality we're doing work in. And with those things all come together to make the design work happen. And then it almost inverts. And so we take that information that we get on the design side, once it's permitted, give it back to the surveyors and they go out there and create that in the field for the, for the contract. So how much with doing all that, I'm sure, you know, it's definitely changed since you got out of school and started. How much would you say that over the years, the technology has changed in order to help your job do better? And do you think uh, there's a ton of improvement that still needs to be done? Or you think that they're kind of more so just start fine tuning uh, the different methods that they have now? Yeah, that's a great question because things what we can do in an hour's time now on the design side compared to what we could do in an hour of time in 1990 or whatever is probably tenfold as much. In other words, we as an industry have done a terrible job of valuing our time. So, you know, although we're producing probably 10 times more information in an hour, we're still charging people the same rates for the most part as we were in the 90s, maybe 10 or 15% more. Uh, and that, I blame us on that. We, we did a terrible job of, of accelerating that. But, but what's, what's not terribly different is the process that goes into the design. Although the computer is doing a lot of the work, the, the time and the effort that goes into the design probably is not grossly different. But when it comes to making changes to your design, it's a whole different thing because now it's just a matter of manipulating things that are already in there in a way that's much easier. For instance, back when I first started, we were drawing uh, ink on vellum. So we had these vellum sheets that when we were doing the drafting, it was with ink pens and a, a thing called a Leroy template that you'll have to research to know what it is. Cause I know none of you do. Um, and, and we would put together plans with that. And well, if, if changes were necessary in the design, that meant broke, breaking out an eraser and, you know, and erasing lines. And it may be on six different sheets and you've got to go recreate that and try to recreate it in a way that you don't miss it somewhere else. You know, now so much of the stuff, you know, you make a change in your CAD drawing and it's going to automatically represent that on each sheet in the set. Right. So you don't have to go in there and make, to make one change, you don't have to make 20 changes. You've got to make one change. And that's really the biggest benefit to having CAD now, or was the biggest benefit to having CAD now. Now, you know, in the last, let's say 10 years, the, the integration of the design steps is much more easily done through the CAD because they're, they, they all, now you've got, you may have three different pieces of software that you're having to use for different design th elements. For instance, let's say we've got, we're going to do grading and grading in, in this 
CAD file that's done in AutoCAD or MicroStation or whatever your platform is. And then we've got a program over here called, um, I think it's called HydroFlow or HydroGraph. And it, in, in this, you can tell I don't use the software anymore, but the, but, but they can go in there and do their stormwater design in that. And it automatically integrates it into the, the CAD file and along and, and, and then you can also do, you know, we go out and we do uh, a survey and all of the survey data is automatically and it's, it's field to finish downloaded into a CAD software that draws lines in there for you. And it, it becomes more of a polishing effort than just a, than just a, a whole drafting effort, if that makes sense. Yeah. And if, if I'm hearing this correctly, let me know if I, if I can explain this. So for people that don't know, you know, CAD is basically what the software people use to make the drawing. So whenever you're talking about making something, you're talking about the drawing set that the construction people would, you know, you know have take a take hold of, right? Correct. And, and the way things, you know, now it, it used to be that, especially when we were hand drawing stuff, you know, and, and the mechanism by which you show somebody how to grade a site is done through contour lines. Okay. So what you generate is a, is a series of lines, a squiggly lines across a map that indicates an elevation. And then you can, you can interpolate between those squiggly lines to see what the shape of the ground is supposed to look like or what the existing ground looks like and how you want to change that ground to make it work. So now, you know, it used to be that all of that stuff had to be hand drawn and you have to have some sort of, uh, you'd have to have a pretty good understanding of that to be able to visualize what that thing really looks like. Cause you're looking at what you're, you're trying to represent a three-dimensional model in two dimensions, right? Well, now in the CAD, you have the ability to generate, you're actually building a three-dimensional model. So you're building a three-dimensional model and then the computer generates these contour lines that we use to show on a, on a set of, can you, unfortunately, we don't have a way of giving three-dimensional models to a, a city for approvals or whatever. We've got to put all that stuff into two dimensions at some point or the other to get somebody to be able to, to build it or, or approve it or whatever. And so the good thing about the computer now is that it will take in these CAD softwares, it'll take that three-dimensional model and represent it two-dimensionally for you uh, and vice versa. You know, you can take a two-dimensional model and you can, um, through building brake lines from certain points on that thing, turn it into a three-dimensional model. So, um, yeah, it's, it's crazy now. Cause now we can take, we've got, uh, in survey, we've got drones now, right. You know, this, this here we go take over the world. Yeah. So we've got, we've been through a few of these that starting, uh, probably three, four years ago, maybe five, six years ago, we started dipping our toes into the, the, uh, drone world, just because we felt like that's where the future is, right? Um, and it's amazing what you can do with something that now costs twenty, thirty thousand dollars. You know, when they first came out, they were a hundred, hundred fifty thousand dollars. Now you can get something for. I mean, we've got one that's a thousand bucks. You know, it's a little bitty parrot drone that we can we can for small sites. We can go out and get good. Uh, topographic information from a thousand dollar little thing that you throw up in the air and it flies around for 20 minutes. But the amount of data that we get now is crazy. And, and the, the amount of processing that you've got to be able to do in a computer now, I mean, we had to buy this computer that some genius 
was able to put together and explain to other people here that are smarter than me how it worked. Um, but we can take one of these drones now and send it up and fly it around. You know, it's, it's crazy how easy it is. And when the guy showed it to me, I was like, ah, there's no way. But you take, you more or less, you take a, a Google map of the area that you want, right? And it, it's geo-referenced and you draw a little polygon around this, the area that you need. And the software designs without anything from you, designs a flight pattern for this drone, a little back and forth, like a turn, like a, a, a Z, Z line at Disney World that covers the site. And you take your drone out there and you launch it and it goes up there and it flies this pattern. You're not flying it yourself. It's flying itself. It finishes what it needs to do and it comes back and it lands in the spot that you told it to land in and you pack it up and put it back in the box and bring it to the office and plug it in and it downloads a gajillion points that represent what that thing just flew over. And it can create a three-dimensional model through all sorts of post-processing softwares that will sit there. And sometimes if it's a big site, we'll download information and just sit there and let the computer run overnight. And it'll run for hour after hour after hour, just generating these triangles and these, these three-dimensional models that represent what it flew over that day. And so um, it's, it's a great tool for us to have because, you know, it used to be that, let's say, for instance, um, a contractor wanted to know how much dirty moved one day or a month. So you've got a, you've got a, <clears throat> a reference from where you started, right? When you did your original topo. And then they go in there and they start moving dirt around and they've got to move, let's say a million cubic yards on this project. And then the first month they've moved some part of that, but the owner's paying them per yard on how much dirt they're moving. Well, now we can go out and in 30 minutes, we can go up there and fly that site and generate a, a three-dimensional model that we can compare to the original model and tell them to the yard how much dirt they've moved. And before- That's crazy. That's so oh, cool. It's nuts. And before, you know, it, it would be, you know, we would have to be, if somebody needed that information, we'd have to go take a field crew out there. They'd have to stop moving dirt for three days probably for us to shoot it and then download that information. And it would take a week or something to get it. And now we can do it in a day. So that's awesome. You know, the, the, it's a, it's a fun time to be doing what we're doing because things are changing pretty rapidly. And, and part of, uh, Walker, what your question was, was, you know, where do you see things go? And, and man, I have no idea. Um, you kind of see that, you know, it seems like day after day after day, the software is improving to in, in, in leaps and bounds. And, it, you know, part of it kind of scares you into thinking, well, what, what do they need me for? If, if these computers, if they get computers with AI to, be able to design stuff that we're designing uh, that, that takes human input now, who knows, right? I mean, they got, you can go to McDonald's now and order your food without even talking to somebody. You can, you, you know, the, the, the way that the world is changing away from people and toward computers um, is a little bit scary. You know, you think the good thing about what we do is so much of it, every site's different. So when, when we, even if you're building, let's say you're, you're building your 400th Waffle House, when you go to that site, <clears throat> the Waffle House may look the same, but that site is going to start off different and it's going to have different 
um, things that you've got to do to it in order to get it to make it look like the site that the 399th one looked like. You know what I mean? So, um, yeah, it's. I, I don't know where the the engineering world is going in the way of design, or the survey world is going in the way of surveying, but. <clears throat> I'm, I'm sure that 10 years from now, it's not going to look like what we're doing now. Because you, you think about my career's 30 years or so. And when I started, we were drawing with ink pens on vellum paper and using erasers and, and having to overlap sheets to see more than one thing going on. <clears throat> 30 years later, we're doing what we're doing now. And those two things are vastly different. So, and, and you think it's only... Because you think about the, the 30 years before that, what changed? Very little. I mean, the, but the, so let's say the 30 years before that, they probably invented the, uh, the EDM, the electronic distance measuring device, the laser thing that shoots out of a transit to measure distance. Um, but other than that, the world of surveying didn't change a whole lot in that 30 years before that. And the world of engineering didn't change. So, so this this change is happening exponentially and the faster computers get and the more they're capable of doing, the more it's going to change. And I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but so far I would say that everything is good. I'm about to steal Walker's phrase and I don't know if he wants me to use it, but you know, one of the things that we want to do is we want to be problem solvers and people connectors. And, you know, you talk about, you know, what computers can do. I feel like, you know, that's the world now. We have to all know when to just put that thing down and, you know, have relationships like this and be able to talk to you or talk to Walker and just connect with people because, you know, a computer can't do everything. You know, it really can't. And, you know, that's how we have a lot of our faith in this world. But, you know, kind of transitioning here, we're going to talk a little bit about relationships. And as a business owner, I think you, you know how to – how do you get value? How you value your employees? Uh, what's a cool way that you invest or you choose to invest in your employees? Yeah. See, now we're, now we're getting into stuff that I'm more comfortable talking about. <clears throat> the, um, the, the, the engineering part of it to me is, is something that I, you know, never really have felt is part of me, although it was something that I did and I felt like um, I could convince people that I could do it pretty good. That, you know, when we, the, the thing that, I think engineers a lot of times struggle with is exactly what you're talking about. And that's the relationship side of business. Um, and I find it, I've always found it odd <clears throat> people who say, you know, that's just business or, you know, you got to keep your business and your personal separated. To me, I, I don't even think that's even possible. You know, I think that if I, if I look at who my best friends are today, um, almost all of them are people that I've done business with, uh, you know, and, and the thing that makes business fun to me is getting to do it with your friends, you know, and I think that goes from not just the people that work here at engineering design group, I'm talking about, you know, the people that we have as subs, the people that we have as clients, the people, I mean, some of the people, some of my best friends are people that I'm in direct competition with, but that I've, worked with in the past or just gotten to be friends with through, through business organizations or whatever. Um, you know, some of the things, you know, back, we talked a little bit about the, the downturn back in 2008, 9, 10, 
some of the, you know, some of the stuff that got me through that was to be able to sit down with guys who were our competitors and our, our work partners and talk about how bad it was. You know, it, it made you feel good to think I'm not the only guy that's going through this. You know, the, the world's not just crumbling for me, it's crumbling for everybody. And the more that we kind of got together and, and commiserate, you know, misery loves company, but it was comforting to talk to people that were, you know, on, on several different people who were struggling through it with you and surviving. And then sometimes it just felt good to talk to people who didn't survive You know, their business went under and it was a horrible thing, but you know what life goes on, you know, it gives you some, it gives you a little bit of a, <clears throat> you know, an encouragement that, failure is not the end failure is just a step in the wrong direction that may have to come back to the right direction. So, um, so yeah, the, to me, the, the thing I learned, the, the, the biggest lesson I learned when I was working at Doherty engineering. And when I was a young punk, like you jokers trying to learn how to make it through this world, um, hey, was, hey, hey, watch it. <laughs> it was, was, Treat the guy that's at the bottom of the totem pole the same way you teach, treat the guy at the top of the totem pole, because the time's going to come when that guy at the bottom is going to be at the top. And, and I've seen that happen countless times. Now, when I think about the guys that I was friends with um, 30 years ago and what they're doing now, a lot of them are now decision makers in whatever organization that they're in. So it's, I think that's an important thing when you're young is to not focus on, I mean, you do focus on relationships with everybody, but the idea that a relationship with somebody that's, uh, you know, in my world, a staff level guy at some municipality or a staff level guy at some contractor or a staff level guy anywhere, those relationships are just as valuable as any other relationship because um, your careers are going to develop together especially if you stay in the same field over a long period of time. Um, I don't know if, did, I don't know if I got to what you were asking. Uh, if not, you can re reword it and I'll try. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's great. You know, that's one of the things that Walker and I talk about is just relationships. How we, that's a huge influence to us. I think for me, a lot of times for me being stubborn, a stubborn college kid was trying to learn, Hey, I wasn't great at making relationships and, you know, maybe that's why I wasn't able to get very far. And so just learning that. But, you know, this is from, you know, my mom and my granddad. So they told me just about how you invest in your employees. And I just wanted you to give an example of something like you do that, you know, most companies probably wouldn't, you know, wouldn't do. Well, you know, it's interesting. We The big focus now in business is culture, right? You, you, you want to when you hear all of the experts talking about how do you do employee retention, it's all about culture, culture, culture. And there's, and that's at least 50% of it to me. You know, you want to have a place people want to come to work, uh, not just trying to hire people, but trying to retain people. You want people to be comfortable where they're working. Um, the thing you can't get away from is compensation, right? So, you know, I, I, every study that I've, read to try to ignore the fact that paying people the right amount of money is important will will point you opposite of that because what happens is i mean even if even if people are enjoy where they go to work if they're not fairly compensated somebody's going to come along with an with with something that 
is going to make it fair for them. And, you know, and at the end of the day, they've got to look out for their families just like everybody else does. So, you know, that's number one is we try to stay on top of what the, you know, what's right when it comes to compensation to make sure of that, you know, number two is we just try to create something here where people want to be, you know, we, we've been big believers in, in, I think our track record would show that we try to hire people because they're good people rather than because we need them. Uh, I think a lot of the times the best hires that we've made came because we picked people up. We didn't really have a spot for yet, but somebody comes in the door and uh, here's a perfect example. Back in probably 2009 or something, when, when we were broke and getting broker, uh, I had a friend of mine who, I worked with uh, at another firm, his name's Chris, and he was he had gone from the firm that we had both worked at and sort of had gotten laid off or had taken another position working for a municipality somewhere where he was tied to a cubicle and uh, in a giant room and he was the only one in there and he was miserable. And he called me one day and said, David, um, you know, I need, I need a job, you gotta get me out of here. And I said, buddy, I, we, we can't afford anybody. We can't, you know, um, he said, I'll work for anything. Just get me out of here. So we, we found a way and he came to work for us and has been, you know, that guy in your organization that every organization needs, the guy that will do anything uh, and be happy to do it. And so, you know, now we've, we've kind of moved beyond that, but we've got, I don't know, um, three or four guys that we picked up when we had no business picking people up uh, because they were available and because they're good guys and added them to the team. And, you know, I think that goes a long way too toward, uh, you know, developing employee loyalty too, is when, when you take a shot on somebody, when, when it really doesn't make financial sense to do that, I think that's appreciated across the board. You know, guys see that as a, as a, uh, you know, when you believe in people, they can, they feel it, you know, <clears throat> it's not something you can fake in my, in my estimate, you know, when, when you believe in people and whether you're telling them every day you believe in it or not, they can kind of feel that that's where they stand in, in the relationship. And so, uh, you know, we don't have anybody here. I don't believe in And And that's, that's beyond what we do for work. You know, that's in life, you know, this, We've had guys leave here, and I, you know, I learned a, a valuable lesson from uh, one place I did work early in my career. And when people would leave there, it's like they became the outsider, right? And they became for, for whatever reason that they left didn't matter. You went from being part of the family to being exercised and and and, and no longer almost hated. Okay. And I never understood that, but I learned a valuable lesson from it. And that's just that that's wrong. And we've got a guy now um, <laughs> that he worked for us for a while. And he, he was a guy that I could tell shouldn't be here. Right. He had a vision. He had a, a drive to be something other than a surveyor, which is what he was for us. He was a surveyor. But he would always come to me with these ideas. What if I did this? And so he put together this business. His name's Sean. Uh, and he's, he's a good dude. And 
it, it, Sean Fitzwater's his name. If you get a chance, look him up. He's a local artist now, but he can't, he would come to me with these ideas. Like I'm going to make a billboard that I pull behind my bike. He loved biking. I'm going to make a billboard and put it behind my bike. I'm going to ride around and advertise for people. And, and they're going to pay me to advertise. I said, okay, buddy, go have at it. So on the weekends, I helped him design his little, his little cart and and they, and he would go out on the weekends and he would do that. And I think it, I think it was fun for him, but I don't think he ever made any money on it. And then he he came to me one day with this idea of he was going to go and start uh, a business. And so I said, you know, have at it. If there's anything I can help you with, go do it. And it's, it's, it's great to see. Cause now is his, um, I don't know if he's making any money or not, but he's doing some really cool stuff doing, I mean, all over Birmingham, you see these murals that he's painted on the side of these buildings and uh, inside buildings and for uh, advertisement and stuff. It's just, it's just really cool stuff. And, you know, I feel like if you don't help people get to that place, you know, I wouldn't have got to experience seeing what he could do. And so, you know, he may have, done a few more surveys here for us but the world wouldn't be a better place like it is with him out there making some artwork which is really cool does that answer your question i, I mean i i think you touched on a, a ton of great things and for one you know what from my very limited experience you know it, it, construction is very much a, a community career i mean it's you work with people day in and day out from all over the place all different like you said, all different levels of the totem pole, all different types of companies, all different types of, of backgrounds, you know, and it's, you would never know or never expect that some of the people that you work with, you know, you could really, and you would, and, and on the, on paper, on the board, you would never connect with them. But when you have them in this, in this construction world that we have, it's kind of a, a fraternity of a sort, you know, where it's just, everyone knows what you're talking about. Everyone knows how you're feeling, what you've been through, because they've been through it too. You know, it, it's right. the they've experienced before. Uh, and then kind of going on what you said, you know, you, you talk about having to kind of balance relationships with work and also balancing your, your employees with your business. You know, this kind of a, a twofold question for one, what is your, what is you, do you find is the biggest challenge of doing that of balancing and it's no secret that profitability is, you know, what makes a, a company run. So what is your, what is the biggest challenge of balancing that with also valuing, valuing your employees as high as you do? And also what do you feel like is the biggest challenge that you face in the construction industry in general? Okay. You probably have to remind me about that part of it, but w when it comes to balancing um, profitability with employee relationships, um, in, in, in our business philosophy, I, there's not a conflict there. You know, it's, I, I'm a big believer that, um, it's going to sound really corny, but when you love people, they're going to be, they're going to be more productive. You know what I mean? And so, um, it's, it really, you know, you hear people say it, and I remember hearing people say and, and, and say, and, you know, and you would go, oh, yeah, whatever. But <clears throat> when you get into a position where I am today, and I, I don't know if it's inherent in everybody or if it's personal to me, but the people who work here really do become family. You know, you, you really do feel 
uh, more of a responsibility than just a friendship. And for instance, you know, when we, um, when, when things were bad, say 2009 ish, I think we had nine employees then. And when things were at its worst for us financially, which it got really bad someday when you got time, I'll tell you that story. But the, 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 the big thing that hit me was when, when it, when it really made more sense to quit than to keep going. The thing that really hit me was, and we got nine families here that are represented that really need me to keep doing this. Um, Because, you know, at that time I could go get a job, but nobody else could. I mean, there was, nobody was hiring in, in our industry. We didn't really have work going on. Nobody had work going on, but, but when you, this idea that, you know, when you, when you think of, of that, it's difficult to separate um, an employee from a family member. It really becomes something where you're, you, um, you love those people. And it, and it's, it's different, you know, it's different than your kids and your wife and all that. Don't get me wrong, but the responsibility is the same you know, or, or even more so to make sure that they've got the ability to see to it that their families are fed and the roof's over their head and all that. But I think that when that is, when that's part of who we are as business owners, then I think it in, inevitably leads to more productive workers. I think you got, you got guys who they're going to work hard because they want to see you succeed just as the same way that you want to see them be successful in life you know I, I one of the um you know best things best compliments i ever got we we had a guy that worked for us for a while one of our surveyors and he just had a terrible attitude it was just terrible it was always sour to the point that it was cancerous within the organization you know and some and, and it came to the point where we had we had to fire him you know, we had to let him go and and I'm terrible at that. Luckily, I've got people here that are cold hearted that can do that. But um, so we had to fire the guy. He ended up going out to Arizona and doing roofing or something for a while, came back like two years later and said, hey, I want my job back. And so we hired him back and he became one of the best guys we had because he appreciated the fact that. Well, two things, he appreciated the fact that we care enough about him to give him a second chance, and he appreciated the fact that sometimes the best thing you can do for somebody is to fire. Um, and he's, he's since moved on. He and his wife had an opportunity to open up a, a subway sandwich shop and that's what they're doing. I hope he's, I hope he's wildly successful, but um, I posted something a while back on Facebook. I don't even remember what it was. It had something to do with the business and an anniversary or something. And uh, you know, he chimed in that I was the best boss he ever had. You know, and that's something that when you when when I think back about the relationship that we had, the ups and the downs and all that, maybe he was just blowing smoke on Facebook. But to me, it was a big deal, you know, to hear that said by somebody that the times that you spent together weren't always good uh, was encouraging. So um, what was the second part of your question? 
What do you feel like is the biggest challenge that you face on a daily basis in, in the construction industry as a whole? And how do you go about solving that? You know, the, the biggest challenge is maintaining relationships because um, a lot of times they're just not nat- they're not going to be natural. You're, we, we've got clients that we work with every day and you, you call them up and they're clamoring to get a chance to come over and drink a beer with you after work or go to dinner or whatever. And then you got clients that it's just a struggle to, because you're, you're just different. Right. And sometimes you know, maintaining relationships with people that you just don't see eye to eye with, or you just don't mesh with personality wise can be difficult. And that's one of the difficulties. The other thing is in our world today is the fear of litigation, right? Everything that we do in, in the engineering world, you you think, think, you know, people are, people that go into engineering school, right, are typically inclined to be a certain personality type, let's say, that is nerds, risk of, nerds. That's right. We're all a bunch of nerds. Um, there you go. But but we're very risk averse, right? And then you go to school and they teach yeah. you for four years that risk is the worst thing in the world, and that mm. you've got to have a, a factor of safety on this that's got a factor of safety on it, and a factor of safety on it, and a factor of safety on it to the point that nothing could ever break. And I get that. Mm. And that's great for doing structural engineering because you don't want somebody's hotel to fall down. It's great for uh, certain things. But in the world of business, you just can't live like that. You know, you've got to have um, you've got to have a certain amount of risk that you're willing to tolerate. Otherwise, who goes into business? Right. Because you, you go into business, there is an inherent risk of failure. And Lord knows I've been there. Um, And so getting people not to fear failure is very difficult uh, in in a lot of different aspects. And I think that, you know, the, the, the big, the big thing that cures a fear of failure is failing, right? If you can fail and you survive that now, you don't want to fail at, you know, a bridge that somebody falls off of and dies. That's, that's, that's bad. But I'm talking about in business, <clears throat> you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, when we try to hire people and, and you can have some guy that's an engineer and he is working somewhere where he's miserable. Right. And you, and he tells you, I'm miserable here. I don't want I, this place is sucking the life out of me in a way that, that I can't handle anymore. Okay. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll hire you. You can come work with us. We'll pay you the same amount of money, give you the same benefits and all that. And the answer invariably is, well, let me think about it. And then the answer invariably two days later is, I, I think I'm just going to stay here. Why? Why are you going to do that? And it, to me, it's such a foreign mindset. But what you find is that we as engineers are driven to a point of no risk. And that means that a job that I know, even if it's miserable, is better than something over here that I don't know that could be so much better. And Analysis so, by paralysis. No, exactly. Yeah. Right. And it's been one of my great frustrations as a business owner, especially in this market where you're trying to, uh, trying to grow a firm or trying to add good people to your team. It's frustrating to see good people 
languish in a place that they're miserable and and there's nothing you can do about it. I mean, I can't go tie a noose around them and drag them over to our office. That's against the law, I think, as far as I know. <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the biggest things, you know, that I'm thankful for is my aunt taught me about the different personality types because um, I'm naturally an introvert. And, you know, I joke and say engineers are nerds, but I am too. I really am. <laughs> naturally, I'm more introverted and I had to learn, okay, my bad. There had, I, I had to learn that, Okay, to go talk to Walker, I have to go talk in his personality type, and he may not be a nerd at all. So I have to go talk to him. I got to go talk to Mr. David. He may be a different one. So learning that skill has helped me a lot because, trust me, I used to be a little turtle that wouldn't talk. So <laughs> Well, and y'all's, y'all's generation, too, grew up without that. And y- y'all – Yeah, especially – and my kids that are younger than you guys, it's even worse, you know, that – this idea that we spend, this is how we communicate with people. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. we're sending text messages back and forth to people. And I understand that there's a luxury in that, that you can send somebody a text message. You don't have to get an immediate response. Somebody can deal with that when they get a chance. So, I, you know, I kind of appreciate that part of it, <clears throat> but it's it, my wife says all the time, she's always talking about how our kids just are not learning how to communicate with each other. You know, that they, they don't learn how to, shake somebody's hand and look them in the eyes and have a conversation face to face with people, you know, they'll sit across the room from each other and send text messages and it drives her nuts. So yeah, I understand. It's, it's, it's not just for you guys. It's not just personality differences. Sometimes it's just, it's a skill that you haven't been required to learn. Right. And I, I think that, you know, I was, I was talking to, to Davis the other day and I was like, yeah, man, you know, he sends me a text and I won't respond for a while is because like, I've learned that I'm really bad if I open a text because I'll forget. <laughs> and so I won't open his text. I'll see it, you know, and I'll read it, but I'm not going to open it until I get to a point where I can respond is I'd rather call, I'd rather shoot him a call real quick and be like, Hey man, let me, an- you know, let me answer this because <laughs> I don't feel like typing this out and I don't, I'm not going to respond to you for a little while because I will forget to respond to you. Sure. My opinion is I think Walker just ignores me. So that there it is. <laughs> when when it says it says red underneath your text and he's hadn't paid any attention. Oh, go on, Davis. You got it. No, just real quick. You know, there was a time, I don't know if you remember this, but you know, I actually was at Jeff State for a time and you remind me of uh, you know, not just personalities, but just being able to communicate. Um, one of those times was, you know, I was supposed to call you and try to start surveying while I was at Jeff State and never did. So there you go. I was scared <laughs> for the life of me. And I don't know why. And now, now I, rem- I wish I would because you remember no, that? I do. I remember that. Yeah. But Mr. David, we are so very grateful that you came on the podcast today and, and talked with us. Uh, I, I learned a ton, a whole lot more than I did. And and I, I have two pages of, of notes right here just on on things that you said, especially about your a company culture and just kind of how your, your, your character, you know, goes into your business. And that's, we, I can see that very well. And I know David Davis can too. Uh, you know, I, again, very grateful to, to meet you and that you're on the show and, and thank you so much. Yeah, this has been fun. I, I, I wish you guys the best of luck in whether it be in podcasting or, or uh, construction or wherever it is that you head. Um, what you're doing is really cool. Just the fact that you're willing to step out and do something wacky like this is kind of cool. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you again.
Thanks for joining us for the Laying Foundations podcast. I'm your co-host, Walker Lott, here with my co-host, Davis Hambrick. We really appreciate you guys joining us. Uh, we look forward to many more episodes we have planned for you. Look for us every Monday. We have an episode coming out. We're also working very diligently to get our social media accounts as well as our webpage up so you can learn a little bit more about us and follow us as we go along this journey.